Hi everyone, David here. Thank you so much for listening to What Matters. We hope you enjoy the show. Before we begin, if you and maybe some of your colleagues would like premium access to the What Matters podcast and want to read or listen to the essential in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy, make sure to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for less than one euro a day, which will give you access to our website and app. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to episode 10 of What Matters, the podcast all about the energy transition to a decarbonist economy brought to you by Foresight Climate and Energy. My name is David Weston and with me this week is Michaela Hole. Hi Michaela, how are you and how has your week been? Thanks, I'm good. Nice to be with you again this week. Uh, sadly, Jan Rosenau isn't feeling very well and can't be with us today, but we hope he feels better very soon and is back with us for our next episode. The legacy of the Soviet Union still looms over many parts of Eastern Europe. Much of the power across the region is still supplied by harmful coal power plants, uh, but these countries also have significant renewables potential. Untapping this resource requires significant upfront costs and an upgrade to existing and ageing infrastructure. Until the start of this year, natural gas was seen as a vital stepping stone for the region to begin decarbonising before shifting entirely to renewables. But with the current war in Ukraine and other geopolitical tensions, does this still hold true? To discuss this, in today's episode, we are joined by Monika Moraviska from the Regulatory Assistance Project, having spent many years at the Polish utility PGE, and by Julian Popov, a fellow of the European Climate Foundation, chair of the Buildings Performance Institute for Europe, a member of the European Council for Foreign Relations, and has previously served as Minister for Environment and Water uh, for Bulgaria. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. I don't think we can start a discussion about Eastern Europe without addressing the current war in Ukraine. What effect do you think is the prevailing discussion in Eastern Europe right now? Is it the need to put up the brakes on the energy transition uh, to reduce energy costs, or is it to move away from Russian dependency entirely? Oh, that's a very good question, and there's no good answer for that because it's uh, different people have different ideas about that, definitely. Um, I think what is tragic really is that the, there is not enough understanding that energy transition is really not doing so much as you know increasing the costs, but rather decreasing the costs. With renewables being so inexpensive now, let alone you know bordering on cheap, you cannot really say that energy transition towards renewables is making you know uh, energy more expensive and the cost of transition is big. So this is a, the big sort of disconnect I see uh, in the political discussion that people still think renewables are expensive. We cannot afford them. Let's not go into there. The, their, let's stay with coal, especially now with the Ukraine. Uh, let's stay with our domestic resource. And this domestic resource, of course, is is dirty. Is uh, There is less and less of it, actually. We do import quite a lot of coal as well. Not for energy, I mean, not for electricity production, but for heat mostly, but still. Um, so, and, and it's putting a strain on our economy in a way that also politicians sometimes forget. Uh, Polish economy, Polish GDP is 50% is exports. And we do have this problem already that our you know, exporting industries are asking really begging for more renewables in the system because they have to report their carbon footprint. And in a few years' time, they will be losing clients abroad because of their high carbon footprint. And that's something that is, you know, really endangering um, the economy, uh, wider economy, not just, you know, the energy sector. So I think uh, this is really tragic. And uh, but, but of course, getting off Russian fuels, that's the biggest priority now. And that's that's actually being tackled quite well. I mean, in Poland, um, we have to remember that uh, Poland already a few years ago uh, made this decision to get off Russian gas. And by the end of this year, this will be completed. Uh, if anything unforeseen, you know, it doesn't happen, of course. But uh, the LNG terminal was built a few years ago already. And this year there will be um, the new pipeline, gas pipeline to Norway finished. And with this, with these two um, investments and domestic supply of gas, Poland will be 
uh, free of Russian gas by the end of this year. And also the government already announced that by the end of this year, actually already by summer, we will be free from Russian oil and, and coal as well. Um, so, so it's uh, coming back to your question. It's a bit of both. I mean, some people are still thinking, you know, coal is the answer to everything. But, but I think, um, you know, the, the decision, the decisions being made are actually going into the right direction. Mm. Julian, uh, would you go along with that from what you're hearing uh, in, in your discussions? And is uh, is the region still considering shifting to natural gas as a, as a stepping stone to break its dependence on coal before jumping to renewables? Or are they going to skip that step entirely and go straight to renewables now? I very much agree with what uh, Monica said. I mean, <clears throat> really, the perception of the transition is wrong. We actually have uh, what I call crisis of narrative, not so much crisis of um, uh, access to uh, to energy. And uh, we are captured in this very wrong narrative that uh, gas is a transitional fuel. Well, it is not. And, um, and we are moving now, beca- because of the pressure from the war on Ukraine, uh, we're starting to understand that there are other ways. But still this uh, view that uh, we have to make a choice between uh, the energy transition and the stability of the economy and the energy system is prevailing politically. And it is very difficult to to correct that wrong narrative uh, because it's simply not so. I mean, renewables are much cheaper uh, the technologies are much more uh, developed and also uh, our ability to build them and integrate them into the grid, into the overall energy system is much, much more advanced than I don't know, 10 years ago when these concepts have developed. So we, we have a very good uh, opportunity technically. Uh, politically, we are very stubborn and stuck in our old uh, thinking still. Mm-hmm. I think I totally agree, Julia, and that's also how I perceive it. And uh, coincidentally, yesterday, I I saw an article, I think it was in the Financial Times, that they basically said the stumbling block, for, I think it was in the context of the reporting of the new IPCC report, and they basically said that the obstacle for climate change, it's politics. That's where it is. And I think it's really true. But I would also say that's that's not even an Eastern European speciality. Huh? I mean, this perception that you just described, and I would add the lack of perception of actually the costs and externalities of the other solutions that we see everywhere. I mean, $1 billion per day to Russia at the moment for nothing. Is there any, you know, is there remotely as much attention on on these things as on supposedly expensive renewables or say the pollution and now our vulnerability? But I would say, frankly, I mean, you know, you see now the discussion and that includes Western Europe. What you see now uh, in the context of Repower EU, we need more LNG terminals and we need new gas pipelines. And that's not only Eastern Europe. Huh? Uh, yes, and that and that's not going to work. Also. Exactly. I mean, it's not going to work because it's not just you put an LNG terminal and the gas starts appearing and and exactly. every single house. I mean, uh, liquefied gas is part of a very complex supply chain. Seventy percent of of it is tied into long term contracts and. Uh, uh, what Trump was describing as freedom gas, uh, freedom gas goes wherever the price is highest. So uh, we're exposing ourselves on price volatility and potentially continuing this uh, incredibly high prices which hit Europe uh, uh, last year. Yeah, so so I think we have this 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 problem here that we you know getting off Russian gas quickly. We cannot do it quickly without some substitution for other types of gas, LNG from elsewhere. So quickly, longer term, of course, we just need to get off gas entirely 
uh, any gas, any source of gas, right? Uh, but I, I would just like to come uh, come back a bit to this gas as a transitional fuel. I think we need to. Uh, I would I would propose a change of wording here. So gas is not a transitional fuel, but it's a transitional balancing capacity for thermal electricity markets, because it's really about capacity. It's not about necessarily generation from gas. It's about capacity that we have to have this stable capacity, you know, this firm capacity that we have to have in order to absorb lots of renewables in the system. And this is how we view, at least this is how I view it. You know, in Poland, when we have 70%, more than 70% of coal in the mix, of course, your your biggest and the, the, the biggest priority is to expand renewables, which is which is being done, and uh, actually, our the climate minister just recently said that we might get to fifty percent renewables in twenty thirty, which would be quite good actually for Poland. But you still need a lot of flexibility in the system to integrate these renewables, and coal plants are not very flexible uh, technically. So you have this dilemma. Okay, so do we keep the coal plants for a little bit longer and try to maybe modernize them still a little bit to get them more flexible and and be these balancing sources, or whether we should build some gas plants to provide this flexibility? Which of course, you know, flexibility is a topic in itself. It's uh, also demand side. It's interconnectors. It's uh, storage. It's all of these things. But of course, some supply side as well. So we, we have this dilemma, uh, and I think you know that this this should be looked at as balancing capacity, transitional balancing capacity, gas, not not fuel really, because these plants will not be running yeah. a lot. They will not be using lots of gas. They will, most of the time they will be sitting idle, <laughs> which is of course bad for yeah. any infrastructure to sit idle. But at least this is a cheap. Yeah cheap-to-build infrastructure sitting idle with very low fixed costs, very low labor costs. So, you know, there's not, there are no ideal solutions. That's what I'm saying. But uh, I think it's a super important point you're making that, that the role of these molecules will change completely. And it's, it's not across the board that we use it, and it's not all the time that we use it. And I think this aspect is not, it's not so present yet in the, discussions around the gas package you know when you hear about um, infrastructure needs etc it is all still built on the old role it had exactly it's a side it's a supporting act that's what it is and that's how also you have to approach it from a regulatory point of view it's not you don't govern it in itself. Like, okay, now we have to decarbonize gas. Oop, we need hydrogen or biogas. You have to approach it. How does it support? Yes, the and what, one uh, further point here on the on the role of gas. It is not just that in the future it will be acting mainly as a balancing capacity, but in the last ten years, if we look carefully into the transition, we will see that uh, uh, gas has uh, lost this uh, quality or uh, this role of transitional fuel. If we look at uh, countries that have more ambitious uh, transition, we will see that gas does not replace coal. Coal is replaced by energy efficiency and renewables, and gas increasingly acts as, uh, as Monica said, as balancing capacity. I also like to call gas fuel of last resort, uh, not transitional fuel. Basically, when we exhaust all the other options to provide electricity, then we fill the gaps with uh, gas. I mean, that's the situation already now, and this is a trend visible in the last 10 years, and it is increasing and deepening this uh, this trend. So we have to understand that role of gas and start working very strongly to reduce its uh, use, not just for climate reasons, but for economic uh, reasons, energy prices reasons, uh, energy security reasons, 
And now we see that also national security reasons. So there are many reasons. And we have to talk a lot to U.S. Um, uh, policymakers who are uh, pushing very much this LNG transitional fuel uh, concept on, on Europe. And, and that's also wrong. I think part of the argument of maybe... Uh, maybe that this is how lawmakers are seeing it is, as, as a transitional fuel is that it's perhaps easier, quicker, and cheaper to set up than renewables, especially maybe in, in the Eastern European markets. So what is the potential of, of renewables in, in this region? And how do you, how can you accelerate the rollout of renewables so we don't have to rely on the gas? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, coming back to Polish example, Poland has uh, really great potential for all types of renewables. Uh, onshore wind has been developing for quite some time already. Uh, recently, unfortunately, uh, there was a bit bit of a break put on on uh, or a big break actually put on onshore wind, which we all are keen uh, to to get rid of finally. And hopefully, this government will will succeed in that. Uh, currently, this seems to be you know exactly as as Julian has said, you know, a question of national security. More renewables means less fossil fuels, less imported fossil fuels as well. So that's uh, that's definitely one. Uh, solar has been uh, developing quite li- nicely recently, and uh, there is still uh, there is a very big potential. I think uh, recently um, the Polish TSO has published a report, a grid development plan, uh, calling for or is envisaging. 20 gigawatts of solar by 2030, at least 20 gigawatts. So that's a, that's a big potential. And of course, there's, there's offshore wind, which is, uh, I think, much bigger potential than any politician now would uh, in Poland agree to. <laughs> so the technical potential, I think, when Europe is estimated at 28 gigawatts uh, of offshore wind in the Polish uh, Baltic Sea. And the current government plan is until up to 20, up to 11 gigawatts in the current energy policy. And I think this is uh, way too low um, and we should be absolutely developing more. There is a, a new round of seabed leases now ongoing, uh, which will, uh, I think, put forward a, a, at least 10 gigawatts of, of, new, of new sites. So that's good, but there is no long-term visibility on auctions. So the auctions for for new offshore wind are only up to the ten, maybe eleven gigawatts planned. So so that's clearly something to work on. And uh, but the government has already also announced uh, a revision of energy policy. Uh, this announcement was uh, just last week. Very little details, unfortunately. Very little numbers. Actually, no numbers there. Uh, but we are still waiting for, for some details that will come uh, probably this year. And I think, uh, I mean, coming back to, to what we said before, not many politicians understand that, but, but still some do. And I think, uh, you know, this uh, push towards renewables, this was uh, also prominent in some of the um, interviews recently by the Prime Minister and Minister of Climate. So, so I think we, we will see a lot of that, definitely. I think, Monica, you're almost too critical here because how I perceived it from Brussels, I mean, a friend working for the wind industry, he once said, you know, Poland is the Eldorado for for offshore wind now. Forget about Germany. And I think when you looked carefully in the past years, you know, you, you saw what Poland was commenting on more ambition and the climate, but behind the scenes, they were very cleverly preparing. And the same friend said, you know, we're all opening offices in Warsaw now because this is the next market. Germany did not install an offshore plant last year. They completely halted the, you know, and I thought Poland was very smartly positioning itself to take over from there. And I mean, you are, you're the, probably you were sent the central person in all of this over with your job in, 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 in Baltic. And I think, you said, obviously, the ambition, that's everywhere. I mean, you saw how much offshore wind we need in the repower, no? in the new assessment of the commission. I think, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's breathtaking because it's for this decade and you know the lead times of this project. But 
the Polish market has actually already at least started. You know, there's many sea areas in Europe where we don't even have anything, like looking at Julian now again in the Black Sea, you see. I actually thought Poland was was on in particular an offshore. They were actually playing a very good role recently. Oh, I agree. I mean, we, we definitely, on this part, we were, were more doing than talking, uh, so, so which is always best. <laughs> rather. Uh, but, but again, you know, it's on, uh, coming back to, to the announced policies, the announced policies say 11 gigawatts by 2040, where you have this new Easter package by the German government yesterday, uh, 30 gigawatts by 2030, I think, offshore wind is there mentioned. I'm not yeah. sure how doable it is with the lead times, of course, but still the ambition is at least there. So that's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not very critical, but I, I think there, there there's a lot to be more to be done. But of course, as well, I, I will, and I was explaining it to also that the industry will, the industry first needs to deliver the few, the few first gigawatts and it's only uh, 20 26 that we will see the first wind wind farms uh, in the Polish Baltic Sea. So, so uh, I think uh, once we get there, once we once the industry really shows it can deliver on time on the budget and uh, it's always working, then we might have a bigger push. I mean, looking at uh, the question of wind, yes, of course, Poland has uh, much uh, higher uh, wind potential than. Uh, the, the political ambition at the moment is, uh, but at least Poland has made a major kind of step forward. Uh, I think for the entire South, uh, Central and Southeast European um, region, uh, the question of wind is very, very important, and it should be pushed politically by governments, by industries, because uh, wind is more complicated it's to develop. Mm-hmm. And and exactly. we are trying not yeah. to do very complicated things, and this is one of the uh, of the issues. Otherwise, the potential is huge. I mean, let's not forget that the the biggest onshore uh, wind uh, in in European Union is in uh, Eastern Europe. It's in uh, in Romania. Romania has massive on- onshore wind potential, which could be developed. Uh, the whole um, Black Sea region has a very strong wind potential. Uh, we're finding it very difficult to push the case for the Black Sea offshore wind, and Black Sea has significant potential. We also have to think ahead. I mean, uh, we're thinking, we tend to think and to design policies with technologies from 10 years ago rather than thinking of what the technologies will be 10 years ahead. Even the current technologies can capture um, weaker wind. Uh, They they can be much more um, efficient. And if we look at the whole uh, region around the Black Sea, onshore and offshore, we can see that just on the wind side, that could become um, massive and very effective and economical source of wind. And of course, um, we have to see how things uh, developed in Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a, a huge uh, potential source of uh, wind generation. Um, is there plans? Are there plans perhaps to use the Polish offshore wind? Obviously, it's been that bit further down the development pipeline. Um, and using that and transport that power from the Baltic Sea across the sort of Eastern Europe region into other countries? Is that one one way countries can uh, benefit from it? Well, I think that's a question about uh, how much interconnectors in general you want to build in Europe, around Europe, because it's, you know, it's you, you never know which electron is, is flying through them, whether it's the, the one from offshore wind or another. So so it's more of about how, how much um, how much more we need to be interconnected in Europe. And I think we will have to be much more interconnected to, to really... Um, take advantage of, of more renewables uh, or to be able to use more renewables because as we, as we said before, interconnectors are, are the essential part of the flexibility in the system that we need to integrate uh, lots of renewables. Uh, in this new uh, network development plan of, of the Polish TSO, 
there are actually two things very interesting. One is uh, that the, they have done an analysis of these hybrid interconnectors uh, from Poland to some other countries with offshore wind uh, in, the, in the center of it. And they concluded, actually, that there are more advantageous um, places to do that rather than in Poland, which was uh, a bit of a surprise and, um, and actually a bit of a disappointment. Of course, it's very difficult to comment on that without knowing the exactly, you know, underlying assumptions and all the modeling involved, all the, you know, technical modeling of, of energy flows through the system. But another uh, another interesting part was uh, there is um, a big uh, DC um, uh, line planned from north to south of Poland that will move this huge energy source from the north up to the, to the south. It's a complete uh, redesign of, uh, of of the grids in Poland, really, because historically we had all the coal plants in the south. So moving uh, the energy was mostly moving, you know, from the south to to the rest of the country, and now we will have these huge offshore wind parks in, in the Baltic Sea and possibly in the future also the nuclear plant also uh, on the coast of the Baltic Sea. So there will be a center of generation, where, whereas most of the industry having, in, you know, energy intensive industries in the south. So, but this, this line, this DC line will also be possibly used to move this energy more south through uh, interconnectors that are already now there and uh, and the future ones so i think you know that's a that's a that's a very wide question i think yes we definitely need more interconnectors in europe everywhere really to to integrate lots of renewables and that's a given i mean i, I think here we it's very important to think um not in national terms i mean we have an integrated european market and this integrated european market is expanding it will include the Western Balkans. It will include now Ukraine is uh, synchronized. Uh, it, it eventually will include Ukraine. So it's a it's a huge, huge uh, um, market territory, and every single country, every single region can contribute with its specific uh, resources and potential. So Southeast Europe, for instance, it has, I mean, everybody has sun. And 10 years ago, we thought that the sun is shining only in the south. Now we see that it's shining even in, in Belgium, and what we saw last week. Uh, but well, not too much. Well, it was, uh, at, at the moment, it was quite sunny. <laughs> Uh, but, but but in the past, England was the joke of every single conference <laughs> when somebody said solar, and, and you always had one very, very original joke. Ha, 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 what about England? Well, England is absolutely covered with, uh, yeah, uh, with solar at the moment, and it, it's uh, entirely on... On commercial on commercial basis, so uh, it, we, we can extract these renewables in a much more um, diverse way. But also, if we look at uh, Southeast Europe, it has wind, uh, it has uh, higher solar potential. Uh, solar is booming; it's out of control actually at the moment. Uh, but also, it has a significant hydro and. Uh, Areas which have uh, hydro energy, both in terms of generation and storage, uh, are uh, much uh, easier to integrate a uh, higher uh, proportion of um, uh, intermittent renewables. So when you start connecting these different territories with their different profile, the, the balancing of the uh, electricity market is becoming uh, kind of much much easier and and natural from market point of view, uh, but yes, we need uh, to think more about infrastructure and exactly this cross border infrastructure. Yeah. You both and I saw in your CVs you both well, Monica is pretty gay, but also Julian, you you worked with Grid. I mean, do you know what a little bit what the investment needs are? We you know with the new offshore and onshore wind. What are the investment needs uh, specifically for Eastern Europe? Uh, as I said, I have the impression at the moment again we are focusing much more on what the investment needs can and should be for gas pipelines. But 
um, do you know a bit more? I, I can tell what you about the new ambition. I can tell you about gas pipelines zero. Um, <laughs> that, that's very simple. Uh, on <laughs> on grid, I think when we talk about the transition, we 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 have a slightly kind of misplaced. Um, answer and and uh, discussion on investment we say oh we need five trillions we need three trillions a year we need uh, 500 billions and and where can we find them i mean that's a wrong way, way to put it if you have a good regulatory framework if you have a good investment um, environment the investment comes I mean, it's uh, the, it. It could be integrated in in the investment proposals. Uh, it, it, we shouldn't think of uh, this uh, modelled investment as some money which we have to, I don't know, find around the house and start opening every single drawer and say, "Well, there, we don't have one billion here. We don't have one billion, so we can't do it." It's 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 not like that. I mean, it's uh, the. The investment, the private yeah. investments, are delivering the necessary, um, the necessary investment. In, well, I would say I totally agree with you, and I I think you make a super important point. And Monica alluded to that already in her first statement. I think this renewables as a factor for competitiveness of your country, like. You know, you have companies, they have pledges for, you know, producing zero carbon steel, whatever. You need to provide an environment for those companies that they can do this. Uh, I heard that once about uh, someone who produces steel in the Czech Republic and they have, you know, they don't have the means yet there to decarbonize their plant because, you know, the policy framework is not there but i would i was always under the assumption okay for generation yeah but for grids they are only viable with public support well, right i mean yeah grids are regulated investments so that's, that's a different yeah. story but i agree here yeah, that uh, also coming back again to this uh, development plan for, for polish uh, tso that they they substantially increased uh, the investments plan investment plans for the next 10 years now like by a factor of for electricity, for electricity yes grid. yes so they yeah. are really yeah. really working on that and because we've been always also saying that one of the biggest obstacles to more renewables is lack of grids and lack of you know yeah. connecting capacities basically yeah. So they are now saying, look, we are expanding our investment, so the grids will not be a problem, which is absolutely great, I think. You know what? The longer I listen to you, I think the Polish will show <laughs> the Germans how to do it better. When you explain this, did you also need the link from north to south? The Germans have the same, oh, you know. No. I don't if the Polish do this cleverly, they can cook, you know. Oh, no. They you have a you have a massive in you know, like if you do this and you invest in the grids on time, you will be much you're doing a better job there. And then if I look at the heating. And Monica, I think PJ was also a bit in district heating. They have also a few stakes in there. I mean, even if they need refurbishment to have this developed grid is an asset for the future, I would say. We said before already now gas is not the transition fuel anymore. So, uh, and you, Poland uses a lot of coal in the heating. So what do you think? Can they jump right you know, overtake Germany again and do a coal to clean using the district heating grid. Okay, I'm dreaming here, but it sounds good. Yeah, it does sound good. But whenever I talk to people who, who uh, you know, manage the district heating companies and, and the CHPs that you mostly run on coal now, they always tell me, you know, it's, uh, it's a fairy tale that we can jump right in. Uh, if we need to, and we do need to switch from coal, away from coal very quickly, like in the next few years, and the gas CHPs are probably the the, the only uh, the only viable alternative, but but that's mm -hmm. and, and probably it's not you know black and white. It's uh, there mm -hmm. are many other alternatives that could be used: waste heat, large scale heat heat pumps. So there will be a, a multitude of investments there. But with coal in heating, that's a much bigger problem: is the individual houses, because you, mm -hmm. and, and this is really, uh, yeah. this is the, the biggest failure of 
public policy in Poland in the last 10, 15 years that we haven't tackled this problem. Huge uh, pro- air quality problem. You know, um, I think about 3 million homes in Poland are heated with, with coal fire, uh, coal, coal furnaces in their individual homes. Very bad quality, uh, very bad for, for air quality, for uh, there is smog being, you know, I think all the lists of, of the worst polluted cities in Europe feature, you know, at least half of them are Polish all the time. And that's tragic. Mm-hmm. But I think here we can jump right in to renewables. I mean, to renewables via heat pumps. So here we might be clever. I think, uh, so what was tragic so far that it hasn't moved quickly to some other sources and these some other sources would probably be gas boilers. There would be. So yeah. now I think this is a big opportunity to jump right into heat pumps. Exactly. And I think this is actually going yeah. quite well. Last last year we saw, I think, over 60% growth in heat pump market in Poland. There is uh, There are a few governmental support schemes for heat pumps uh, currently. So, so we see the market growing. And I actually saw um, this very interesting infographics, I think yesterday or the day before, uh, the governmental fund for environmental protection that runs some of these support schemes published an infographics uh, showing that uh, an annual bill for heating a home with gas versus a home heated by heat pump pump plus a PV um, uh, on PV generation uh, is six times more expensive. So gas six times more expensive annually than heat pump plus photovoltaics. I haven't verified yeah, the numbers, I, so I haven't I, seen I can the, confirm the that. Uh, it, I mean, from a different perspective, so uh, annually the uh, Agency for Sustainable Energy in Bulgaria does uh, a very simple calculation about what is the most expensive and cheapest uh, uh, thing. Bulgaria has similar problem. Romania has similar problem with. Uh, uh, single houses, uh, probably not so, uh, including coal, but uh, more um, biomass, wood, basically, which creates all sorts of other problems. And and this mm-hmm. is one of the main reasons why we see these pictures of uh, bad air quality in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, if we look more carefully, we'll see that this is mainly in the winter and uh, this is a result of heating. Mm -hmm. But uh, one interesting trend in the heat pump, so if you go to Bulgaria and you say, "Mm, what about heat pump? And people who have some vague idea what heat pumps is say, that's a great idea, but it's not for Bulgaria. It's it's for the rich countries because this is very expensive. Uh, what about air conditioning? Mm-hmm. Oh, air conditioning is great because air conditioning, it's everywhere, basically. Everybody is in, including air conditioning. Well, air conditioning is a heat pump. <laughs> oh, no, it's not. And the fact is that without <laughs> knowing, thousands and thousands of households switch off their existing heating and go to air conditioning system without realizing that they're actually installing heat pumps and at the same time arguing against heat pumps. <laughs> so we we need this uh, kind of uh, communication, promotion, education. I don't know what to to call it. That to to understand that yeah. even what we're doing is already is uh, is kind of the right way, and uh, to be supported in many cases, the support should be just regulatory, political, not even financial, because the financial. Um, benefit is is absolutely obvious, and and of course introducing more complex um, uh, financial instruments because um, I mean especially I can say about Bulgaria that the financial market is very uh, very simple, and the com- the complexity of financial instruments is not used, and as a result of that, the energy efficiency of housing heat pumps, change of uh, uh, heating uh, systems is going very slowly because you either have 100% public grants for something or you leave it completely on the owners to, to transform it. 
but the potential is absolutely huge. Mm. Hi everyone, David here again. Just a reminder that you and your colleagues can get premium access to the What Matters podcast and all of the in-depth journalism from Foresight Climate and Energy by subscribing. You can give us a try for 30 days for just €29, where you can access our website and audio app. Go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes. Now back to our conversation. That was that was going to be my next question. You, you say it's a lot cheaper to install a solar uh, and heat pump system into, into a house than relying on natural gas, but is that upfront cost, which is the, the seems to be the main barrier with consumers? Is there support available um, for for homeowners and building owners to access this renewable uh, or this cheaper heating options? I mean, I would say there is, but not enough. And again, we come to, to what I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, when things are complicated, governments are trying not to engage with that. Uh, it is a little exactly. bit more complicated, no. but the potential in the, is there. The money is there. I mean, over the uh, last two uh, years, the, the pandemic time, time uh, people saved huge amount of money. And and they tend to spend them on on buildings. You need a little bit of uh, guiding and and some um, measure policy measures to help people to channel this this savings. I mean, not only from coronavirus time, but from before, uh, to to channel them towards um, home improvement. I mean, we also have a chunk of public support money. If I look at the EU, the modernization fund for a few countries is substantial. And in the recovery plans, I mean, you know that the commission is now entering into dialogues with the member states again to see what can we do to reorient. I mean, when I'm listening to the two of you, I'm going big time into something like heat pump and PV for households seems to be the first one on the list. Uh, I don't know the details, but, uh, you know, I mean, so basically what they are trying to find is can we shift somewhere the money? And these things strike me as as absolutely good ideas to do that shift. I mean, a Polish plan was actually never adopted even so far as far as, you know, it's not yet. But Michaela, this is exactly what is happening, actually. So the Polish, yeah. there, there's a Polish support scheme managed by this environmental fund that is uh, supposed to have uh, 25 billion euros yeah. in it oh. uh, over a 10 years time really? for for clean heat program, uh, which is exactly replacing those old coal boilers and insulating homes. And it's uh, it it goes from the recovery plan, so hopefully it will be adopted. The money yeah. will be there, but yeah. the, the instrument is already there. The support scheme is already there, and it's working uh, already. And there are some others. There will be a new support scheme directed specifically for new homes. There is a, a tax um, break for insulations. Uh, so there are a few instruments. So it's it's more. I think it's a question what what Julian has said of education. The first thing, and maybe scaling them up, mm. giving you know, uh, making them more accessible, less bu- bureaucratic, uh, quicker. And uh, but I think the foundation is very good already. It sounds to me. And imagine once people find out the air gets cleaner, you know how it how this will, you know, once you start this, and people would say, "Whoa, the winter's no longer polluted." Imagine. Absolutely. You know, we have this, uh, this the Krakow, the, one of the biggest cities in Poland, very beautiful city that had notoriously bad air quality. But it introduced a ban on, on heating homes with uh, with coal a few years ago. And like just like that, the heat quality was 50% better from one year to another almost. Really? So it really works and the people see it, definitely. So it made it, so people were like, wow, that's what's possible? We want more of yes. that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we've spoken about we've spoken about support for heating and support, uh, needing greater interconnection and um, tra- uh, transmission upgrades, and all of this is forming part of sort of the European Commission's uh, Green New Deal and the recovery packages that are coming out of the European Commission. Uh, Julian, in the past, you've already uh, argued that the European Green Deal perhaps widens the gap between Eastern and Western Europe. Is that still the case? And how can we bring the two uh, halves of Europe closer together? 
I mean, it can widen the gap for the simple reason that uh, we, something that we have been discussing now, the way uh, East European countries tend to um, look into the more simple solutions and um, digging themselves in to the, the past, basically. And this is uh, particularly visible in uh, Southeast European countries. Poland is a bit more advanced. But uh, what I worry is that the, looking at the Green Deal, what is the Green Deal? I mean, the Green Deal is... Uh, uh, strategy for uh, industrial innovation, basically energy innovation and uh, and also social innovation, financial innovation, uh, research and development. If we don't see it as such strategy, the risk is that it will be adopted and developed as such strategy in Western Europe, especially in Northwest Europe, but it will be seen as a fund for absorption in Eastern Europe. The result is that most of the innovation drive will go into West European countries, quite rightly so, because they are on the track of innovation. While in Bulgaria, in Romania, in other countries, it will be used to fill either budget gaps. I mean, the European Commission doesn't allow budget gaps, but this is creative accounting and creative budgeting, which is very easy to, to kind of bypass, uh, or strategic failures. And the result will be that in five years, as the result of the Green Deal, uh, most of the East Europeans will improve their car fleet by buying uh, rather uh, five years old Volkswagen rather than 20 years old Volkswagen, while all the Germans will drive electric cars. So Bulgarians will be very, very happy that their new car is only five years old, not 20 years old, and will say, wow, the whole thing is going very well. But the gap between the West and the East will widen uh, massively. I mean, this is just one example, but uh, if we look in I don't know, development of hydrogen, development of I don't know, heat pumps, development of uh, uh, batteries, new technologies, uh, building uh, uh, new high-tech uh, factories and so on. So uh, this is, uh, in my view, uh, a serious uh, problem. If the Green Deal is not applied and developed in a proper, deep way in uh, the East, that uh, could widen the gap. And it's very difficult to do it because Eastern Europe is spending much, much less than Western Europe on research and development, on education, and on adult education. Adult education is absolutely essential for the Green Deal because we have to um, re-educate, uh, reskill, upskill massive amount, massive number of, uh, of people. Uh, but uh, the, the system is not there. And East European countries are not spending money on that. Bulgaria and Romania are notorious about very low spending on research, development, education, and adult education. But the other East European countries are a bit better, but not that much better. I think Julian rightly pointed to here to, to the transport sector being the, the, the probably the biggest problem. I agree with that very much. And we probably have to acknowledge uh, something that is I think given that there will always be some time lag, you know, between Western Europe adoption of different things and Eastern Europe because of just different stages of economic development that we're in, and of course I hope actually and I, I there are some it's not, there are signs that this gap will be uh, not widening it will be rather uh, smaller and smaller during uh, the next years but uh, but still we yeah I agree and there there are massive you know behavioral changes needed for example transport I mean. Warsaw, I, I don't remember this, the exact stats now, but I know Warsaw has more cars per capita than most Western European cities, much more than Berlin, I think twice. And it's, and it's hor horrible, really, <laughs> because of, also because of that, Warsaw has bad air quality because of car, car pollution. 
but uh, but this sort of change in behavioral um, behaviors and change in public policy towards more uh, public transport, uh, cycling, you know, these type of and and just traveling less, uh, more with the train, less with the car, and things like that. But these things take time. Uh, they and and they you know they are very very heated politically. And not just in Poland, of course, not just in Eastern Europe, because when we see, for example, I, I'm, I'm eagerly waiting for the German government to, in, to impose, you know, uh, speed limits. Don't mention the tempo limits. Yes, absolutely. Mm. <laughs> Don't mention the tempo limits. It's horrible, you know. This, <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely horrible, you know. This is <laughs> quickly and it's not possible to do it. <laughs> Monica, Monica, you you don't know what is the feeling to drive with 200 kilometers per hour. Oh, Julian! <laughs> and be behind. I can't believe you're saying this. <laughs> no, I, I'm not saying that it's right. I'm saying that it's no, a special feeling. I have to drive to Germany this evening for the holiday, and I can tell you, I'm already sweating because it is so aggressive and it is so scary. I have two small kids. As soon as I cross the border, it's like, <gasps> you know. If you don't go at 150, you're harassed. It's not fun. Well, if you want to do a good public service, drive slowly in the fast lane. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of... You can, you can start a movement, drive slowly in the fast lane, and then you, you don't have to I wait realize, for the government to change the rules. As soon as the word tempo limit was dropped, the quality of our discussion deteriorated <laughs> substantially. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> just, just one point, uh, which is quite interesting, actually, about uh, transport. Uh, Poland and Bulgaria are leading producers of bicycles, including electric bicycles. A uh, company in Bulgaria now has the um, ambition to become the biggest producer of electric bicycles in Europe. All that goes for export. You can't see bicycles on the road <laughs> or on the streets. Uh, so there are these very interesting discrepancies between um, entrepreneurial uh, spirit and and drive and and policies and um, that is something I don't know how to address it but uh, it is there there is a massive disconnect between what people think what people are prepared to do and what uh, politicians and policymakers uh, do policymakers are much much more behind the the public attitudes absolutely we're coming to the end of our time together uh today um before we go uh just one last question is there something that perhaps western europe could learn from eastern europe uh from the eastern bloc from maybe visegrad visegrad countries um just uh, from the region in, in as a whole is there something that western europe can learn from eastern europe when it comes to the energy transition lots of failures it's oh, you always uh, learn yeah. from from that from bad examples, own. yes. No, you, you have to learn from all failures. <laughs> I don't think Western Europe can learn a lot from Eastern Europe, but it's very important Western Europe to learn Eastern Europe, to understand Eastern Europe, because Eastern Europe is a massive blocking power. And very often what we see is Western Europe quite rightly ignoring East Europeans if they can, because they just, they're just trouble. The latest, the latest thing that you can see is the the commission on uh, the the scientific commission on climate related to the European climate law. Fifteen. There is not yeah. a single East European in it. No, there there really? isn't. And, and what is the really? reason? I mean, East Europeans are not pushing themselves into the climate area. West Europeans are there, and they say, "Well, I mean, it's just." Let, let's go as we are. And I'm not saying that th there should be some, uh, we, we should do that because of some political correctness, diplomatic niceness, and so on, and the European abstract values. It's a very practical thing. If, if we allow this gap to continue, uh, what, what you do, you build resentment in the East. I mean, the, the height of this resentment is uh, the elections of, uh, of, of Orban. 
I mean, the, you, you have a very uh, distilled, pure form of resentment of all sorts of things, historical communism, I don't know what, differences between households, and so And then you have a political result, and then when you have a crisis, like Ukraine, like some something else, uh, then this uh, political differences could become critical for the uh, European cohesion, but also for European security. So for that reason, it's very important to understand why East Europeans are so stubborn uh, and what you can do to involve <laughs> them more, but also to use them, because Eastern Europe could be a fantastic um, uh, territory, for instance, for um, relocating some of um, the uh, outsourced outsource in China industries because of lower um, labor costs and, and many, many other ways. It's, they're, they're a huge uh, source for clean energy and, uh, and so, so it's uh, I wouldn't say Western Europe should learn some, I don't know, high-tech achievements from Eastern Europe, but it's very important to understand Eastern Europe. I can offer some positives uh, here. Um... It was uh, all but positive. I agree with yeah. the stubbornness. I, <laughs> <laughs> the stubbornness. I'm always saying, you know, if you want the Polish people to do something, just don't tell them what it is that you want to do. <laughs> just don't tell them because if you tell them do something, they will largely say no. <laughs> we won't. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, but one uh, one uh, a good example of uh, of something that uh, I think Poland did very well. Um, Poland, this is not a very well-known fact, but it was one of the first countries that introduced auctions for renewables, uh, which kept, uh, you know, costs down. Uh, we largely skipped uh, the phase of feed-in tariffs in uh, renewables development, so very high costs, costly uh, measures. To So going straight to CFDs uh, awarded through auctions, that was a very smart move, and that really uh, made all the difference because the costs were were there, they, they were transparent, you could instantly see, uh, okay, so this uh, wind farm is costing me 50 euro per megawatt hour, not 500, as we all thought, you know, and politicians were saying, oh, look, these are, no, look, these are not expensive. This is the auction results. You had this, um, this cost for the next 15 years. So that was, uh, I think, very smart. I actually think that we will have the potential to have negative charges for renewables on household bills uh, in the next few years because of this you know uh, high wholesale prices now and and fixed uh, cfds uh, from from the auctions so so that will be a, a big change uh, i think also from the perspective of you know communication towards customers um, uh, just to add one thing, I'm thinking we all can learn a lot from Poland what should be the consistent attitude and position towards Russia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, it was absolutely uh, absurd, this packaging of Hungary and Poland are not following the rule of law. There are two things that define uh, the good European country relationship with Russia and level of corruption. On this two, I mean, European Union was uh, established in a, as a security union, not as a, a as a um, uh, kind of a church. Uh, and when you look at uh, what is important, we see now very clearly that relationships with Russia and level of corruption are probably the two defining uh, things. In both uh, areas, corruption somewhere in the middle, uh, in terms of a relationship with Russia and understanding of Ukraine, where the big threat to Europe uh, is coming now. Uh, Poland, not just you can learn, it was probably the only country that had a consistent and very strong position. The other, sadly, was UK. Mm -hmm. One thing we ask all of our guests on the podcast is to look into their crystal ball and just imagine what the energy space will look like in 10 to 20 years' time. 
Uh, Monica, what does your crystal ball look like? Well, um, I'm a big believer in um, digitalization uh, as a big force driving driving our world and especially energy board. So I, I think 10 to 15 years time, uh, 20 for sure, we'll see um, all our energy usages and supplies being digitalized in a way that the demand side response or flexibility will be seamless. We will be not be thinking about it. All our uh, electric uh, devices will be seamlessly integrated with the wholesale market, working as a support for the uh, for the system, not as a as a you know as a problem for the system. So, like all EV charging will be smart. All heat pumps will work in a smart mode as well, only working when the when the electricity prices is down. So I think, and this will happen, and this will be really integrated in our lives that in a way that does not, um, you know, put a pressure on quality of life, but rather enables this flexibility without our thinking of it. So that's my um, definite vision that this will happen for sure. Uh, Julian, I'd say. Ten years ago, we didn't have idea that the energy system today would be what it is at the moment. So the first thing that I would say is that we don't have any idea what it will be in ten years because the um, the, the the pace of change is so strong, and the investment in uh, innovation and research and development is so big that uh, we will definitely see massive changes. Whether these changes will come from the world of hydrogen, whether they will come from the world of something else is, is difficult to say. But I think in 10 years the energy system will be uh, massively transformed. Uh, there will be uh, that will happen in quite chaotic way in East European countries, probably led by uh, solar and with delayed uh, wind development. Uh, but uh, I agree that uh, digitalization and smartification of the energy system will uh, basically take over the whole um, development. And uh, what we call artificial intelligence will uh, sort of rule the game. Absolutely fascinating, fascinating stuff there. Um, before we go, then finally, uh, I'd like to go around the table and and, and see what caught your eye this week. Uh, anything particularly that really stuck with you on the energy transition, Michaela? What's caught your eye in the last few days? It was a quote from Draghi where he said about the energy embargo, no, in the context of the energy embargo. Uh, and I just loved how he put it, the whole dilemma in one sentence. Do we want peace or do we want our air conditioning to run in the summer? And I just, you just feel the pressure on the sky at the moment. But at the same time, I love it how he already dares to tell his people the truth in a way, like preparing what <laughs> I just, yeah, it's just this one sentence that somehow... <laughs> you could feel him. That's uh, Italian Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Monica, how about you? What caught your eye this week? Well, uh, many things, of course, as every week. But I think uh, two most uh, prominent uh, Easter package by the German government, uh, the new uh, goals for uh, renewable expansion by 2030, very uh, very ambitious. And also the, the fact that they announced that uh, renewables will be now deemed as investments in interest of public security, which uh, which I think uh, takes, I mean, gives way to some more leniency on part of environmental impact assessments and things like that, and uh, planning rules, which is uh, which is uh, remarkable, I think. And the second one, of course, the uh, the new energy security strategy of the UK which is uh, in a way quite different because it also bets heavily on the new nuclear. So there are, I think there are 24 gigawatts nuclear announced by 2050 um, and largely absent on, um, on onshore wind. Uh, so that was, uh, that was uh, interesting. But 
I think both of these strategies uh, also quite absent on energy efficiency, which is uh, which is uh, unfortunate because, as we know, this uh, that's the cheapest the cheapest um, power we can get is from not using it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting. Uh, the energy strategies they want some ninety five percent. Uh, the UK government want 95% of electricity from low carbon sources, uh, but they're going to do that without onshore wind um, or without expanding onshore wind particularly, which it just seems mind boggling. Um, and also a, a review into fracking, which is also going to be uh, interesting and up to 10 gigawatts of hydrogen, uh, uh, hydrogen capacity, I think. So um, yeah, really interesting. On the face of it, it looks quite ambitious, but when you actually dig into the details, um, perhaps not as, as, in, as um, ambitious as it perhaps could have been. Uh, Julian, what caught your eye this week? Well, uh, one graph from the uh, latest IPCC report from the Working Group 3, which mm. is uh, a beautiful, powerful graph on the mitigation options. And the IPCC report is impossibly complex and huge. And uh, there are very few people who sit and read it but um, Yandas parts I I assume that he's not (laughs) ill he's sitting at home and just get get the IPC report but this graph is basically listing all the all major mitigation options which are not just solar and wind but they're uh, probably around 20 and uh, uh, color them in terms of uh, cost and uh, positive cost, negative cost, and and so on. And I find this uh, very good and very uh, educational for uh, public, for analysts, but mainly for policymakers because it's simple. Policymakers need, need simple uh, messages. I would print it on a big uh, poster and offer it for every single minister to put it on their wall. Absolutely. Really interesting. Uh, Thank you, Julia. And just finally, from me, um, uh, well, the UK energy package uh, for for one there, but also um, a project in Scotland that's taking place. Uh, National Grid is replacing uh, grid inertia, which previously uh, provided by fossil fuel um, projects um, for grid stability uh, are now being... Uh, provided by low carbon and uh, zero carbon sources. They've just awarded uh, 10 contracts, uh, £323 million of investment um, to help secure the grid in a green uh, and, sorry, secure and stabilize the grid in a a green and low carbon way. Um, So I think, you know, just the innovation that's going on, uh, particularly on the grid side in the UK, I think is really interesting there, Um, uh, using flywheels uh, as well to, to boost the inertia. So, some really interesting projects there and a great sort of vision of how perhaps European grid could be secured in the future. Great. Thank you so much. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Monica, Julian, and Michaela. If you have any thoughts or questions about anything we have said on today's podcast, you can reach a, reach us on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Dave W underscore Foresight. Monica? I'm at Mo Morawiecka. Julian? I'm at, uh, at Julian Popov. And Michaela. That's simple. At Citizen Sane One. Uh, we can you can also tweet the show at What Matters Pod or email us at show at whatmatterspodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again very soon.